Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And I'm not with my co-splainer today, Christina Hoff-Summers, because she had to suddenly go to Portland because her mother took very ill. And those of you who have listened to us know that her mother is 94 and a devoted listener. The good news is her mother is fine so far and stabilized, and Christina will be back next week. But the real silver lining, maybe the only silver lining to this, is it allows us to bring in our friend, Megan Cox-Gurdon, whom we have long wanted to have on the program, to fill in for Christina. Megan, I've known, as long as I've known Christina, maybe longer. I think we're talking a good 20, 21 years, something like that now. I think so. And I'll just give your quick femme facts so people (laughs) know that you're also a real professional and we're not just bringing in some amateur, random friend. Old friend. (laughs) Old friend. So Megan, aside from being fabulous, we would never bring you someone who wasn't fabulous, is the children's book critic for the Wall Street Journal. She has a book coming out in January, which we will, of course, have her on for, called The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. She's a longtime journalist. She's writing about family life, raising kids, of which she has five. (laughs) Woohoo! We have pretty much raised our children together outside of our worlds of writing. Absolutely. We made all sorts of errors together. We judged each other a lot. We judged each other. We found each other wanting. We also (laughs) were impressed by and inspired by each other. No, I think it's been very collaborative. So Megan has a daughter who's just one year younger than my eldest daughter. Right. I have a son that they're pretty much close to being the same so, yeah, age, a little have, younger. Yeah, yeah. Daughter 24, son 21, daughter 18, daughter 17, and daughter 12. It's amazing you can keep track of them. I really can't. Actually, it's terrible. When I go to CVS and they say, just the month and date of so-and-so's birthday, I stand there and I have to rack my brain. To think, Wait, which, one, which one? <laughs> Or birthdays. Is or when they were little and yeah. the doctor would say, so how many pounds is she? And I would think, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I stopped at three and was just impressed that you just kept going. You know, it's just my way, really. I like to do things big. <laughs> Excessively. I think my late mother-in-law once said, parents always have one more child than they can handle. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, oh, alas. I think that's untrue, actually. I think that we all probably have one too few children. Yeah. I think we probably These days, all maybe. Should, yeah. Maybe back in the 60s when she I was. I should have gone for the nice round number, six. Oh, my God. But okay. I didn't. Well, then we'd never see you, which would be a problem. (laughs) Actually, it's really great to have Megan on this program today because we are talking to Kim Brooks, who is author of a new book called Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. And on the cover, one of the blurbs says, it might be the most important book about being a parent that you will ever read. And I actually agree with it. This book is fantastic. It gets at the truth of so many things about modern parenting. It's kind of extraordinary. It hasn't been done so well before. Right. So we've talked in the past about helicopter parenting and do children have enough freedom today? And, and, you know, they don't go outside and they're always on their laptops or their computers. But she had a horrific thing happen to her as a mother, which we'll let her tell. And she then started to wonder, what is going on with modern parents? And Megan, Kim's book really gets into how, as the subtitle suggests, that we're parenting in this age of not just fear, but paranoia, that we're so terrified something is going to happen to our kids, not just the usual parental fears of illness, but that they're going to be snatched by strangers, that they can never, ever be left alone or entrusted to themselves, even to cross a road, because something bad might happen to them. And she wrote in the foreword to her book about why she wrote this book, she said, why have our notions of what it means to be both a good parent and to keep a child safe 
change so radically in the course of a generation? In what way do these changes impact the lives of parents, children, and society at large? At what, in the end, does the rise of fearful parenting tell us about our children, our communities, and ourselves? And basically, she's getting to this issue that underlies helicoptering parent phenomenon, which is parents are always with their children. They're supervising every single minute of their lives. And as we will hear from her story, if a parent takes their eye off a child and some bystander happens to notice, the consequences can be truly horrific. Right. And, and we've all heard the stories of social services sweeping in for, I think one of the last stories I read was just for a woman letting her children play in their own fenced backyard unsupervised. And clearly it was a peevish neighbor who didn't like the kids playing outside. Right. But, but there's this weapon. It's like, right. it's like the French Revolution where you can just inform on people. Total strangers can use videotape or they can just observe, take your license plate number. Videotape their phones, you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Megan Megan is, okay, our joke about Megan, Uh, Christina, our joke, (laughs) is that we call her 1900 house because she was one of those mothers who never let the children watch television. Oh, I did so well for so many years. I know. You'd go into her house and it was like you'd step back 100 years. All of her children, it was like, the sound of music or something. They were all perfectly dressed. They were all in the kitchen, you know, (laughs) standing around, short of singing, but making cookies and bread and doing chores. In matching sailor suits. (laughs) No, they weren't actually. So I did aspire to matching sailor suits. I never went there. And actually, your children were the bane of my children's existence because my children always were left so wanting. I used to joke that my children are going to be the least accomplished kids in Washington, D.C. because they never took after-school classes. They never showed any musical talent. I kind of just let them run feral and well, let well, them do what they want to do, but they're growing up okay. They're wonderful, interesting kids. Yeah, but... well, to be fair to my earlier idealism, it didn't involve a lot of after-school sort of enrichment. It no, you so were the after-school I was the after-school enrichment, enrichment. I, I, and I really enjoyed being with them, and it was, it was a lot of fun. But you'll be, I think, relieved to know that the whole system has broken down. As it eventually does, I think, after the second child, right? You know, your husband once said to me, I was confiding in him some anxiety I had about one of my older children and the path of life that was being laid out. And your husband, David, said, just calm yourself. Think, how will you respond when your youngest daughter says to you, Mommy, Daddy, I want to be a meth dealer. (laughs) And I got it instantly. I was like, oh, sweetie, that's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) The point being that you agonize about the decisions that your older children are making. And then by the time you get to number five, you just think, well, you know what? It'll all wash out. You know, meth dealing, there's a lot of money to be made (laughs) in it. In television. And you you don't have to go to school for it or you can sell to schools. But one of the things that was great about having Megan as a comrade in the motherhood foxhole was that she and I, despite our differences on television in the 20th century, we both were strong, natural proponents of giving our children a lot of freedom, that we were always the secretly irresponsible parents. We'd let our kids go and have a picnic in the park together when they were, you know, sentient enough to do that. And we'd sit and drink wine and you know, watch them fall out of trees and things like that. We had, a, we had a saying in our family, we still have this saying, if you can climb it, you can climb it. So I let my children climb as much as they wanted anything that they wanted. In fact, the magnolia tree outside your house, I remember one of my daughters went right up to the top of it. It was an enormous thing. It was like, high. it was at least 20 feet high, yeah. maybe 30. And I stood there at the bottom and I, you know, I would say I clenched my hands a little bit and, and my feet and other parts of my body, perhaps, as I watched her <laughs> little platinum head, you know, waving around at the top of the tree. And then she came down, and that was great. She had the experience. She also did 
subsequently break two Both arms. her arms falling, falling out of a tree. a tree. Yeah, I was going to skip that part. <laughs> Actually, no, that was a really, honestly, that was a test. I found it a kind of, a, obviously a test for her, a very unpleasant one, where she had to have her arms set, both of them. And that made eating awkward for a while. But no, it was also a test for me, right? I really believe that children should be free to explore the physical world. They should be able to explore, you know, the intellectual world to the degree that they want to and read things widely and, you know, learn a lot of things about the world. But, you know, when she fell out of the tree, I thought, ooh, this is the point at which either I am culpable for neglect. Mm-hmm. It was actually it happened at school, but whatever. You I let could, her go to school. I let her go to school. Right. I let her go to a school where that let, let her climb her trees, trees yeah. which of course was intentional. But then you get to that moment and you think, hmm, if I were a different person, I could sue the school. I could put a stop to this. Right. All of these How kids would stop. Dare you me. let my child climb it? Right. Tree. And then not even take her to the hospital, but just phone me and say, oh, we have her here in the office. She seems to have broken both her arms. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, you know, it was, well, I she think, survived and I survived. and. To make an omelet, you have to break a few arms. (laughs) One of the things, even before we get into what Kim Brooks does so brilliantly, the obsessiveness, the culture of modern parenting, we so often compare childhood of today to the childhood that we experience, and I guess every generation does that. You and I both grew up in the 70s. You had like hippie parents, and you grew up in kind of rural Maine, and I grew up in the city of Toronto. And in both places, my parents... They were like walk-on characters in a sitcom. They were loving, wonderful parents. But I'd check in at the end of the day, even when I was like seven. Like I was riding buses by myself. I had a, well, I say I had a horse. It makes it sound terribly, you know, equestrian. It wasn't like that at all. This really was rural. You had a big old, I had a big old fat out there. <laughs> but I loved her dearly. Her name was Goldie. And I would put a saddle pad on Goldie and I would ride all around, you know, sort of inland mid-coast Maine. And yeah, I'd get home from school on the school bus and walk up the maybe a quarter mile up the road to my house. And my dad was at work and I would saddle Goldie up and off I'd go. How old were you then? So I would have been 12, 13, 14. Yeah. And then at about 14, I got interested in bipeds rather than quadrupeds <laughs> uh, of the male, male persuasion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in fact, like my daughter who fell out of the tree, you know, there was one celebrated incident. I was actually going, riding my horse to go and buy a saddle from a farmer some considerable distance from the house. And my memory of the experience was that something startled in the underbrush and my horse startled. And then I just saw her withers passing up as I went down onto the road. And I was found by somebody driving by and I had a massive concussion. That explains so much. That is exactly right. (laughs) Oh, my math scores, always. (laughs) And I woke up in the hospital. But the thing about an incident like that is you remember that because, of course, that's where something went wrong. And it can give alarm to worried parents everywhere that this sort of thing might happen. But that was just an incident in years of adventure and fresh air and exploration and just being out. Just to give one example, my horse was quite a tall horse, and I couldn't get on her without the aid of some other device, such as a stone wall, or Mm -hmm. I'd find a stump or something. Mm -hmm. I had to be ingenious about getting on and off this Mm -hmm. enormous animal that I was riding around through the countryside. There was a lot of, I'm sure, personal growth in that time. Oh, my goodness. And it wouldn't have happened if we were looking at a horse on a screen, you know? Well, that's, but it's also that sense of, I just remember also, I always look three years younger than I was. Not now, alas, but back then. (laughs) I was a very puny little kid. And I remember, I may have been eight, both our parents worked, and she would be home around four or five every day. But I would go down, you know, to go to the dentist by myself. I'd get on the subway, the Toronto subway, which as everybody who's been there knows, it's famously clean and remains so to this day. 
And I remember a man coming up to me on the platform, and he sort of looked at me. He said, are you okay? Are you lost? And I was so indignant. Like, how dare he think I'm too little to be on the subway by myself? You know, and I still remember that and the sense of indignation that I had. And we were latchkey keys. And I think the 70s probably was the most neglected generation because that was also the time where mothers really were going into the workforce and divorce was starting. So there was a lot of kids and there were no cell phones. You just really fended for yourself, but you never felt that it was neglectful. You never felt abandoned by your parents, but you're glad a lot of the time they weren't hovering over you telling you not to do things. Absolutely. Also, I really think the idea that it is neglectful is the thing we've got wrong. It's so, right. so wrong. How did we become, our generation, the hovering, obsessive parents? We'll find out. Before you go to kids, let's get our secrets on the table. What is something, aside from the horseback riding, which sounds very charming and Little House on the Prairie, what was something you did as a child? Like the most reckless thing you couldn't do today. Okay, so knowing that we were going to have this conversation, I have been scrolling back through my own files of childhood and remembering just how fantastic it was. In fact, I wasn't just allowed to go about and do my own thing. My parents, my mother in particular, actively pushed me, encouraged me to go out and do things and be, be brave. I remember one of the lines that I resented terribly when I was a child was, I'd come home with some complaint of a teacher or a child who had offended me or hurt my mm-hmm. feelings or said something that was improper. And she said, well, you have to go out and deal with them. And I would say, no, but you're my mom. All the other moms do something about it. And she said, you have to learn to fight your own battles. And The phrase irritates me even now, but she's absolutely right. You do. You have to learn to advocate for yourself. You have to learn to find your way around. Like if you get lost. I think what would now be considered the most reckless is we moved to a new house. It was first day of, wait for it, kindergarten. Nice. And my mother walked me the first day. But after that, and it was like four blocks to the school through a nice neighborhood, not two busy streets, but a busy street. And after that, I was expected (laughs) To find my way with my older brother, who, of course, ditched me the minute we got out of sight of the house. And I remember asking other kids for directions because back then all the public school kids walked to school. The streets were seething with kids. And then some other kid took me under their wing and got me to school. And then after that, I knew the way. And it would be considered insane now. Like I had a paper route at six in the morning. I'd get up. And again, I was this tiny little eight-year-old who looked maybe five. (laughs) I would get out with these papers. I was too young even to remember street numbers, but I remembered the houses by, well, this one always has the porch light on, and this one has the funny window. And this, and then, not only that, aside from doing that at five in the morning, you'd go collect. I don't know if you had a paper route, but the way people paid for their papers was once a month, you'd show up in their door, and they'd give you money or check for that month's subscriptions, and usually you hoped to tip. But then you're sending this little kid to strangers' doors to knock and ask for money. I mean, it's amazing. So I think I must have been six or seven, and I was given a gift certificate to get a banana split at Friendly's. My parents were divorced, and my mother and I at the time lived in western Massachusetts in a town called Pittsfield. And we lived in a not terribly savory neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of money. And I had a burning desire, of course, to use this gift certificate. And one day, I don't know if my mother was at home. I don't know if she was at work. But I walked by myself down a long, long hill and around some curving streets and across a bridge and over a river, then across a busy street to where the Friendlies was. And I presented them with my gift certificate. I can remember it to this day. It was felt like unimaginable riches, you know, a whole 
banana split for myself, like two, possibly three scoops of ice cream and all the toppings. You're making this sound a bit like the Florida Project, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) And I devoured this thing, and then I wiped my little six- or seven-year-old mouth, and I stood up on my six- or seven-year-old legs, and I walked home. And I do remember a feeling of exhilaration as I descended the hill toward the friendly. When I think back on it now, I remember the city street, it was hot, and the feeling of independence. It was exciting, it was exhilarating, it was a little scary, but don't you want that in life? And that's exactly the kind of fear that we're going to talk about with Kim. So let's bring Kim on. Kids are different today. So, Kim, welcome to the Femsplainers. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you just mentioned, just as we were checking the sound levels, that you have your son. How old is he now, Kim? He is almost 11. Oh, gosh, so much older than in the book. When he was, what, five, I think, in the book? But he's homesick, so we're completely sympathetic to any interruptions as mothers ourselves. But why don't you begin by telling us the incident that started you thinking about these issues and eventually led to the writing of this amazing book? Sure, of course. So it was quite a while ago at this point. It was about almost six years ago. And I had been with my children visiting my parents in Virginia, which is where I grew up. We'd gone from Chicago to visit. And it was sort of the last day of our trip when I realized as I was frantically packing up and trying to get everything ready for the flight, that my son's favorite headphones, the ones that he liked to wear on the plane that didn't bother his ears, were broken. So I decided to run to a store that was about a mile away. My son wanted to come with me. I said, fine. When we got to the store, I looked in the rearview mirror and I noticed he had discovered my mother's iPad, which she left in the car and was playing a game. Obviously, he could crack the password by that age. Right, of course. (laughs) Um, so he asked if he could wait in the car while I ran in, and I decided, you know, it was, a, it was a cool day. It wasn't hot. It was probably in the upper 40s, and it was a safe suburban area very close to where I grew up. And so I just sort of made the decision without giving it a lot of thought that it was fine. I said, okay, and I ran into the store to get this one item. I think in the back of my mind was the fact that this was where I grew up, and I had all these memories of being a kid myself in the 80s and sitting in the car all the time while my parents like ran an errand. So I went in. I got the one item. I was gone about five minutes. I came back. He was completely fine playing the game. I got in the car and drove home to get my daughter, and we went to the airport. It was only when I landed in Chicago that evening that my husband met me there and told me that apparently after my mom returned from dropping us off at the airport, the police came to her house and we learned that someone had seen me do this, seen me run into the store, had recorded it on their phone, had called the police, and that the police had then shown up after I had already left with my son and that the police were now looking for me and were interested in potentially charging me with a crime. And what was the potential crime you had committed and would be eventually charged with, right? Yeah, well, at the time, I had no idea. <laughs> and so I you know, immediately started researching it. Was there a law that I didn't know about in Virginia that you weren't allowed to let a kid wait in a car? Or, and I found that, no, there wasn't. And in fact, most states don't have specific laws about this kind of thing, about you know, how much supervision children need. 
So it was one of these areas where it was sort of up to whoever saw it or to the police officers investigating it, what they wanted to charge me with. I had no idea. And it was actually about a year passed before finally I learned that I was being charged with a misdemeanor, which was contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Oh, my God. Sorry. It's not funny. It's not no, funny. It's, it's, it's so shocking. And I, and I was it's not so shocking. clear. I was not buying him beer in the store. I <laughs> so just want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, I know. It, it sounds ridiculous. It sounded ridiculous to me. So I asked and what they said was that if you render a minor in need of services, then that can be the crime. And so they said, well, for example, you know, you left him in the parking lot. And if you hadn't come back, then we would have needed to take him into social services and process him. Well, obviously, if you (laughs) didn't come back. But the point is, you ran in for five minutes, you got narked by some maybe well-meaning person, but probably what we used to call busybodies. Even having gone for five minutes, the police needed to go to the house and maybe if you were a police officer in that circumstances, you think, OK, I have to go say something, right? Because, you know, a mm-hmm. citizen has made a complaint. But you would just say, yeah, yeah, I know, you know, sorry this has happened. But, you know, just just watch it. Just don't do that again. But you actually had to fly back to Richmond. You had to plead guilty to this misdemeanor of contributing to your own child's delinquency and then get punished. I didn't actually plead guilty. What happened was my lawyer was able to get something called a continuance which means that he got the prosecutor to agree that they wouldn't press the charge if I met certain criteria, which was 100 hours of community service. Just a little bit different. You know, I didn't want to plead guilty because, and this is very common in people in my situation, you know, it's one thing to plead guilty to a speeding ticket or something like that. But to plead guilty to contributing to the delinquency of a minor, to have that on your record, even if you're not punished severely for it, I'm a parent. I'm a teacher. I really did not want to plead guilty for that, regardless of what the punishment would be. So this is what my lawyer was able to work out. Lenore Skenazi, who you talk about in the book, founded this moment, Free Range Kids, 2008, after she wrote a column. I actually remember reading this column at the time, but letting her then nine-year-old son ride the New York subway by himself. And once you connected to her, that was a good thing. But tell us about, I mean, lawyers call it a parade of horribles. Tell us about some of the other stories that you and through Lenore uncovered, quote unquote, as to what is happening out there. I mean, what are parents, aside from yourself, getting arrested for or in trouble for? Well, a lot, I think, is the short answer. In addition to talking at length to Lenore, I also spoke with a woman named Diane Redleaf, who runs an organization in Chicago called the Family Defense Fund, which represents parents who are not charged with criminal charges, but who are being investigated because someone has made a call to Child Protective Services. And so what I learned through both of them and through my other research, I mean, everything from letting a child wait in a car for a couple minutes while they run into a store, to letting a kid walk to school by himself, to letting a kid play in a park by himself. There's a woman, I'm actually meeting her for the first time in a suburb of Chicago. This has gotten some press. Someone called the police because she was letting her eight-year-old daughter walk the family dog around the block. But to be fair, come on, she wasn't walking an attack dog. It was something like a Maltese. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. And Right, exactly. Right. They both could have been kidnapped. <laughs> they both could have been kidnapped from, from Wilmette, one of the most probably nice, boring suburbs of Chicago that exists. So it's a wide, wide-ranging 
number of things that people are being sort of shamed for or behaviors that are being criminalized, all of them things that a generation or two ago people wouldn't have thought twice about. People wouldn't have blinked about these sorts of things. So I I find myself really curious about the motivations of the bad Samaritans, the busybodies, the people who feel that they need to not only comment when mothers make decisions they don't like, but actually actively intervene. And I wonder, I mean, you present some of this so beautifully in the book. I'd love you to tell our listeners, like, why do you think this is happening? How have these trivial moments turned into legal matters that then engulf women and their families? Well, yeah, that's sort of the question that that I set out to explore in the book. And I mean, the first thing I want to say is people get very upset when they think about this person who called the police or people who do it. And, and I understand. And, you know, the thing that does irritate me the most about it is this sort of blind turning to authority, obedience to authority, you know, this assumption that the best way to handle any conflict or any concern is by calling the police. But I do want to say that I don't think most of the people who are doing this are out to hurt people or to hurt families or mothers. I think that what's happened is we've arrived at this strange moment in our culture where when we see a child unsupervised, especially unsupervised in a car, but really unsupervised in any public place, people now assume that that constitutes an emergency, that a child that's unobserved by an adult is a child in peril. And the problem is that this assumption isn't really based in any kind of factual change or factual evidence. It's based in this aura of irrational fear that sort of descended on us. In terms of why that's happened, you know, I think there are a number of reasons. One is the 24-hour news cycle, the way that the news now focuses obsessively on any story of like a child being hurt or injured in in an unusual, strange way, right? Things that you wouldn't have even heard about 30 years ago. We see it again and again. What started in the 80s and 90s, this obsession with child abduction and kidnapping and stranger danger. And then with the car, you know, there's also been attention in the last decade to what's called hot car deaths, which is something that happens about 30 times a year. And it is very tragic and horrible. But that usually involves a parent forgetting the child is in the car, often an infant. Now that car seats are rear-facing, it's much easier for a parent who's thrown out of the regular routine to remember that, you know, the child is in the car. So, you know, we see a child in a car, we see a child alone in a park, and people want to help. You know, there's a sense like, if I'm seeing something wrong, I don't want to just go about my business. But the problem is people aren't stopping and thinking and well, why is this an emergency? Why is a child that's unobserved for a couple minutes an emergency? Well, before we get into the actual part of your book where you talk about the incredible safety of today's world versus the previous world and how irrational these fears are, one of the things that I thought you described so well was sort of the adult mother's brain. You know, when you have two kids or more under five, and I think A therapist called it the all hands on deck, every man for himself, just trying to survive phase where, by the way, I had PTSD just remembering this, but it's like (laughs) your mind on young kids is both spectacularly organized and spectacularly distracted. Your book so vividly opens with this. But you got to something deeper as you went through the book that not just fueling this problem is paranoias created by the Internet people just turning to police more quickly. Your book is a profound insight into how we as women, as mothers, have changed. 
you talk about some of the fueling the problem. Some of them is like the decline in young motherhood. As we postpone it, we just don't have even the selfishness of a young woman, the healthy selfishness, where you just feel you have to know everything about what your child is doing. You talk about the expectations, not only we have of modern parents, but what we have of ourselves. And it starts, as you observe, the minute you know that you're pregnant, then forever, that you have to read books, you're always judging yourself, you're always feeling like you're not doing the right thing. And then at one point you said, how could something as common as parenthood feel so unnatural? Let's talk about that aspect of what's going on. I think that there's a lot of different factors at play. One, I think maybe the overarching factor is that children are just simply not integrated into our culture anymore in any kind of healthy way. And the experience of caring for children isn't integrated. I remember talking to this one sociologist at the University of Virginia. He was saying, if you were a woman a generation or two ago, by the time you had kids, maybe you'd grown up in a multi-generational home. You'd had experience with cousins, with nieces and nephews. At this point, because we have a lot of the characteristics of a low fertility society, because a lot of women aren't having children anymore because we've made it so impossible. There are some exceptions. Yeah. Just pointing that out. <laughs> Megan's doing her bit. I'm doing my bit to pay for everybody's social security <laughs> and have more children. <laughs> yeah. So part of it, I think, is that in the last couple decades of the 20th century, we essentially privatized the responsibilities of raising children. So things that used to be sort of dealt with communally, like educating children, their transportation, their recreation, the things that the community absorbs, those responsibilities, we've now privatized. So parents have this kind of a la carte, like everything is a la carte. And so when it comes to what are you doing for your kids? And there's this tendency toward choice and competitiveness. And, you know, choice sounds like a good thing, right? Like, well, of course, it's good to have different options. But the problem is, is that when nothing is culturally determined or standardized or just determined by like tradition or what your parents did, we're some sort of bombarded with possibilities and choices. And with choice comes this sense of anxiety or insecurity, because if you can choose, then you can choose wrong or you can choose better or worse than somebody else. Kim, you really captured beautifully something that I experienced also, and maybe a lot of us do. There was the kind of culture shock on entering the parenting world. Here we were, self-determining, self-actualizing adults. We have a baby, and suddenly we're surrounded by other people. In my experience, it was like other people had been equipped with a script that I wasn't familiar with yet. And it was a radically different way of talking to one's spouse, but also to children. A very kind of cringing, collaborative way of, you know, fathers, men would highly educated and accomplished men would squat down next to their little kids and say, hey, you okay, buddy? And your point about choice, I see that parents inflict that on their children all the time. Do you want apple juice or do you want orange? Do you want Cheerio? Oh, oh, don't, don't throw the Cheerio at mommy. You know, this kind of strange, unconfident, tentative way of talking to children that, well, this is just one manifestation of this parenting culture. The kids ruling us problem. Yeah. And actually, you know, like all the power is invested in, in the little kids and Parents are sort of tiptoeing around trying not to get it wrong with them and not to detonate them. My mother watched me raising my five children, and you know, she actually did a pretty good job, has done a pretty good job of not interfering too often. But there was one point she said, when I had maybe four little children and they were all quite young, she said, you know, I've been watching how hard you work as a mother, and I've been thinking, what is it that's different? She only had me, so personally, she didn't have a, a whole passel of children, but, you know, she was in that 1960s world. And she said, you know, I can't, I've been racking my brains to think, what is the difference? 
And then she hit on it, that in her day, when I was a child, parents would put their babies into playpens. You know, the but playpen. My mother the, got me a playpen with the bars, and it was the best thing ever. I was horrified when right, I received but it. But people, we were horrified. Now, why was that? Because there's been this somehow this reversal of the hierarchy that somehow parents are working for kids. I don't mean to be running away with this interview. I want to hear your view on this. But in some interesting way, we now serve children rather than seeing them in this more traditional hierarchy that you describe with the with the entire you know children being integrated into the society. What do you think of that? I think it's very interesting and. A lot of it is this strange reaction to the way things were a generation or two ago. And I think a lot of people feel like, people will say, well, when I grew up, I didn't feel seen by my parents, or I didn't feel like my needs were a priority to them. So I think that parents today, there's this desire to make sure that our children feel valued, that they feel loved and valued and seen as people, right? The problem is, though, I think what's happened is that We forget that being a person or being a member of a community doesn't mean that your needs are more important than everybody else's. It means that your needs are as important as everybody else's, right? So I see this too, and I fight this urge myself, that we put our children up on this pedestal. We sort of idealize them. At the same time, they have no actual right and very little freedom and very little choice but we sort of dote on them and idealize them in a way that is ultimately as dehumanizing as what it's reacting against, the whole children should be seen and not heard thing. I mean, just to give an example, it's like my kids there who are older now, they'll be sitting on the couch, they'll be doing something or watching The Simpsons or whatever, and they'll say like, can you give me a cheese stick, mom? You know? Yes. Oh, <laughs> my. Give me a snack, mom, please. And sometimes, like, if they say please or they ask nicely, I, I go and I start doing it. But then I started thinking, like, if I'm sitting on the couch and I want a snack, I get up and I make myself one. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe, you know, occasionally. No, I remember saying to my children, hey, I'm not a waitress and this is not a diner. So you're going to eat what's in front of you or get it yourself. But that was, like, freakish to do that. So I started saying just, help yourself, you know, help yourself. Here's the refrigerator. But I mean, that's just like a small example. But I think that that goes on sort of all the time. To really treat children as people, as members of the community means that, you know, their needs matter, but my needs matter too. And if our needs are in conflict, then we're going to have to negotiate, we're going to have to compromise. And I think that a lot of people don't do that. Or to be stronger, like they need to be doing more stuff for us. I remember I thought one of the greatest phrases of parental liberation was that first time you said, take your sister to the bathroom (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or get your sister some juice. But when we're talking about these parents, we're talking about these very educated people and especially mothers who were very ambitious. And, And maybe this is a little bit of the difference. They're coming from a world of adult work and then they're finding themselves thrown into the world of children It's not just that they maybe feel inexperienced or, you know, the skills you wrote about this, the skills they had at the office or whatever aren't really being very useful when you're cleaning up Cheerios and things. But there's also a huge ego in it, I think, that we have this sense that we are forming these kids. They're like our project at work. And everything in our ego depends on their outcome. Can I just read you what you wrote, which I thought was really, really good? Just in this spirit of the over-management of our children's lives, you wrote, you're at a birthday party with 30 other parents watching for two hours as our children played, chiming in with encouragement and managing their every social interaction. I could never figure out 
my kids would have a birthday party. You know, by the time they're old enough to have a party and not be infants, all these parents would come and I'd have to put out like coffee and snacks and sort of manage them. And just say, why can't you just let your kid come to a party and have a good time? It's insane. Right. So we're, we're stymieing their development. Yeah. At the same time, though, I have incredible sympathy for women who do sort of do this, who kind of treat their children like a project and take this on as like a career. Because, And I write about my own struggle with this as a new mother. It's important to remember that nothing in our, the way our society is structured or our policy supports women who are mothers working. The average cost to have an infant in daycare is now $17,000 a year. If you have two kids under four, you're looking at, you know, 30 to 40 grand a year. And that's just for regular daycare, just like 40 hour a week daycare. So when I had kids, you know, I think I did the math that a lot of women do where I thought I had an MFA in fiction writing. You know, I had some experience teaching and editing, but I thought if I put my kids in daycare and try to work full time, I'd be paying, you know, 75% of my salary would be going to drop them off at daycare. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to stay at home. But yeah, what happens then is you have this entire generation of very educated, very competent women who really should be in the workforce. I mean, if not full time, at least somewhat, they should, they should be working, you know, and we're bored and we're not being challenged. We're not being stimulated. And so, of course, it makes sense that you take all these women and you kind of force us or push us out of the workforce. Or we, we take ourselves out for the reasons you say. And let's also be honest, when you survey women, that a lot of women across the economic spectrum want to be home, at least in these early years, with their kids, too. Or part-time. Or part-time. But they well, want right. they, they, you don't want to just, there's not a big zeal, and I think you felt this, too, that when you went toward those daycares and you don't just want to have the baby and hand it over to someone either. Like, you want to be a mother and a father. Right. I mean, especially the first year or two, you know, I think a lot of women want to be home with their kids. And that's why in most other industrialized countries, they have state subsidized year of leave. Often, you know, sometimes for both the man and the woman, we don't have anything like that. We don't have anything like subsidized quality universal daycare. So definitely for the first year, a lot of women want to be with their babies. You know, and I think a lot of women, even after that first year, they want to be home somewhat with their kids. There's a section where I write in the book, we talk about it as like a woman choosing, does she stay home or does she go back to work? And the reality is I think very few women would choose to be away from their small children 45 hours a week. Very few women would choose to be at home with them 45 hours a week. I think what most women would prefer is a more balanced life, uh, more options, more flexibility, the chance to be with their kids, but to also be in the world and work in some capacity. But we don't really make that possible. We don't have policies that support those kinds of lifestyles. So women are sort of forced to choose one or the other. We're talking to Kim Brooks, author of the new book, Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Hey, Megan. Well, I'm glad you're here today yeah. because I can tell you as a friend about Scentbird. Scentbird is one of our new sponsors. Yay! <laughs> and they provide new perfumes every month to try on a subscription service. What a great idea. It is a great idea. How big are the bottles? Well, they're a good size and they come in these very elegant little canisters that you can put in your purse. And there's over 400 
50 designer brands to choose from. Wow. And do they just send you randomly or is there some way of deciding by algorithm which perfume suits you? No, none of that algorithm, none of the stuff you don't want. You get to choose a new designer perfume each month. I chose this month Judith and Charles. Sounds crowded. <laughs> or, or, or for both sexes. But no, it's, it's actually by a Canadian designer and I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to try it and it's really, really lovely. But also what is nice is you get to just try these things and you don't end up committing to a huge bottle that then just sits on your shelf and never gets used. That seems like a brilliant idea. So wait, what's it called again? It's called Scentbird.com. And if you go to Scentbird.com, and use the code FEMSPLAIN, you'll get 50% off for your first month, only $7.50 for your first month, plus free shipping. So go to Scentbird, S-C-E-N-T, bird.com, and use code FEMSPLAIN for 50% off your first month. Data cologne before you have to commit to it forever. Put a bird on it. So you're talking sort of about the loss of adult life separate from the children and any identity beyond mom. You're saying we're just default settings and we're just thrown into this world. One of the things, and maybe we can bring in a little bit the role of the husband or partner in this. I remember when we had our first child, everything figured out, all the equipment, planning on the child, you know, sleeping in our bed or next to our bed. And my husband very firmly said, we are going to keep an adult life. I think he overdid it in the sense that it would have been really nice if the baby was next to me in a cradle because I wouldn't have to walk down the hall to feed her at two in the morning. Uh But he pitched like he did his bit, too. But if he hadn't said that, I would have been sucked into this same world. And the other thing that he did, and we didn't have any real money at the time, but he set aside enough money that I could have a sitter come twice a week for a few hours. He said, you don't have to do anything. Just go to Starbucks, have a coffee, read the news, just right, do what you want, but just have that time to yourself. And I was, in retrospect, well, at the time, very grateful, but that recognition that you, too, as a couple, have a life outside of this children, as Megan was saying, we see these kids take over people's lives. And this is where you really need to be a team. And one of the things that, first, in your book, you make it very clear, this is really affecting women. We don't hear a lot about fathers. We don't hear a lot about this teamwork, that it default falls upon the women. I think we've gone through the experiment. We're not going to make stay-at-home dads. You know, that just doesn't seem to be happening as a big thing. And Christina was here. She would say, on survey show, women don't want it. But let's talk about that, like maintaining an adult life, maintaining your identity separate from your identities as parents. And how can the partner husband help? Well, I mean, I think the ideas you mentioned are really compelling. I think that, you know, the problem is that we're, we're very comfortable in this culture with women being mothers and with women doing things as mothers. I don't think we're very comfortable yet with mothers being other things as well. The idea that you can be a mother, you can be a good mother, and you can still be a professional, a wife, a girlfriend, a friend to your other female friends, that you can be like a multifaceted person who has children and takes care of them well. We've all sort of bought into this I want to even call it this, this sort of cult of motherhood that a good mother is a mother who gives herself completely to motherhood and allows her identity to be completely subsumed by it. And Judith Warner wrote really beautifully about this in Perfect Madness, where she sort of compares the way we look at motherhood to the way she was raising her children at first when she was living in France. 
And she said, you know, she had met all kinds of women who had kids in France. She'd met stay-at-home mothers and working mothers and everything in between. And she said, I never met a mother, though, who would say she didn't have time to read a book. That, like, to say that in France when she was living there would have seemed ridiculous. You know, we so, all want to be French. Let's just put it. Let's, let's, let's be frank here. We want to look like the French, French women. <laughs> let's be French. <laughs> right. But, but I mean, I think what she's getting at is interesting, though. Like, she sort of says, you know, if you said that in France, if you'd say, I'm so busy with my kids, taking my kids everywhere that I don't have time to shower. I don't have time to read a book. You don't have People time to come to the cafe. <laughs> right, right. People would think it was ridiculous. And maybe and here, like, I think when women kind of do that, it's this like humble brag, right? And it's like, oh, it's so hard. But it's like the idea is that we want credit for that. That we're saying it's so hard, but it's like, it means I'm doing it right, that I'm so busy with my kids that I don't have any time for myself. And I think we need to change that sort of culture around that. If I have a friend say something like that, I'm like, you know, you should really take a shower. <laughs> uh, but we've made it very hard. We've set up now this expectation that to be a good parent means that you are either watching your children every second of every day or you're paying someone else to yeah. watch them every second of every day. For most women in America, that's not feasible. You know, you, you use a phrase, the arms race of devotion. And I, there's one passage in your book that I circled when I was... Actually, I've marked up this copy horribly because there are so many things I think, oh, yes, this is exactly Yeah, we it. will never get to all the marked up. Uh, <laughs> but if you would indulge me for a moment, I love this particular line you say. You're talking about parenting as a competitive sport. Nobody ever, no matter what, admits to competing. We smile and nod and hold our judgments until we get home from the restaurant. We say things like, there's no single right way. We say these things as we sip our drinks, and only when we get home do we say to our partner or the nearest person who will listen, what the fuck are they doing with those kids? <laughs> nothing is acknowledged, nothing is discussed, and on and on the parenting game goes. It's hard to win while pretending not to play. Yeah, so the shame culture keeps this going, which is what you're saying. I think so, yeah. And I think in the fact that what makes people judge other people it's often insecurity, right? Like, this is what we tell our kids. Someone who's being mean or bullying them, we say, it's not about you. It's about how they feel about themselves. And I think that that's what's behind it, you know, is that most of us, like, we don't know how to do this. We're doing the best we can in a culture that doesn't support us. So there's this just general feeling of insecurity and anxiety. And one easy way to sort of alleviate that anxiety is to say, well, okay, but I think I'm doing it better than that person or the other person. I remember we lived in New York when our first child was born, and we were in this walk-up brownstone in Carnegie Hill, which was then not as charming as it is now. But we went across the street. There was a cafe on the corner. That's what I loved about New York. And we figured out that the baby monitor from our daughter's room could reach the outdoor cafe table at this particular huh. restaurant. So my husband would come home from work. We, we would, would repair to this cafe and have a really civilized meal when, you know, after she'd gone to bed. And we had the, the baby monitor on the table. So I, we could see if the house caught on fire and we would know right away if she woke up. Anyway, so we're having a fine time doing this. And it was also at an intersection. And I remember a woman walking up, just waiting for the light to change. And she glanced down at our table. Then she glanced down again. And then she saw the baby monitor. And then she looked at us. And then her eyes widened and she was horrified. Like it, the penny dropped what we were... <laughs> up to. But fortunately, we, right. didn't, we didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, she didn't call the police. Right. And that was pre-calling the police because this is Dinkins, New York. There was a lot more <laughs> things going on than parents neglecting their children. But let's go back to that thing that you, 
hinted at at the beginning that the world is actually safe from the fears that we have and safer than the world that we grew up in ourselves. Like this whole idea of stranger danger. And that's the reason people don't think you should leave your kid in a car or play in a playground because they have this idea that your kid is going to be snatched. Right, exactly. And the problem is that statistically, it's just not a significant risk. I think I, I write this in the book. The Lenore Skenazy has a lot of great statistics on this, but you'd have to leave your child in a public space for 750,000 years for him to be abducted by a stranger. I think at that point but he'd be a how... fossil. and He'd be abducted <laughs> right, by an archaeologist. Exactly. <laughs> so that's how unusual it is. You know, whereas I talk about many, many more children, I think the number is 485 children are injured or killed in car accidents every single day, not every year, but every single day. So, you know, by far the most dangerous thing I did that day was just put my kid in the car and drive someplace. But, you know, the problem is, is that we don't fear rationally. It's just not the way our brains work. And so it doesn't matter how unusual it is. The fact is, if you've seen a movie about a child abduction, if you've read some awful story about it, even if it happened only one time in five years, it doesn't matter. It sort of gets inside our mind and it creates this fear. The big problem, though, is the assumption now that we have to institutionalize that fear. People, since I started promoting the book and talking at bookstores, like people will sometimes come up to me and they'll say, you know, well, I'd like to be able to run into a store, but I just can't do it. I'm too afraid. I think about this kidnapping I saw on the news. It's just too upsetting to me. What should I do? Like they want me to tell them like, well, you should go in, you know, you should let your kids do that. And I'm not going to do that because like, I feel like we all have our irrational fears. You know, I'm still kind of afraid of flying. I hate to fly, even though I know it's completely safe. But the problem would be if we started saying, you know, if I were afraid of flying and I were able to start a movement saying that, you know, well, people who bring their kids on planes should be arrested. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's coming. I'm sure that's coming. (laughs) Yeah, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. So I don't think the problem is fear. I think the problem is the expectation that we all have to capitulate to these fears, no matter how irrational they are, and that we then have to institutionalize these fears and sort of structure our culture around them. Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. We're talking with Kim Brooks. She's the author of a new book, Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Aside from the more likely problem that they're going to be injured in a traffic accident, the other thing that you said, and I think this is new or fairly recent, that the overwhelming threat right now is childhood obesity and the health disorders associated with it. And you wrote that what used to be called adult onset diabetes is now called type 2 because kids get it now. And you quote a researcher saying, The fact is having your kid get fat and develop heart disease and die before her time is sad, but it doesn't scare people. There's no law and order diabetes unit. This is the campaign we should be having, right? And let's also create a culture where kids can go out and play again. I just read a recent study that when a child in this country now turns 19, they are as active as a 60-year-old. It's terrifying. We love individual responsibility, right? We love to blame people. 
and to say, you know, well, if kids are overweight, it must be these individual parents who aren't doing it. The fact is that there's, there's nowhere for children to play now. Many places have no public spaces. We don't allow them to walk to the store, to walk to the park, to do a pickup game of baseball, you know, without an adult hovering over them. So the only place that they're allowed to have any freedom is sitting on the couch on their computers. Of course, they're becoming overweight and they're becoming obese. Or as you pointed like, out, they play with their kids online like through their Nintendo games. That's how they socialize. While sitting still. So, you know, when you were describing the predicament of children now, of course, I, I thought of Lenore Skenazy's Let Grow campaign, right? To actually change the culture, maybe one statement at a time, one state at a time, to try to, to make it possible for children to experience some of the freedoms that we had in the past. I would love to know what your thoughts are on how do we do this? How do we change the culture? At one point, you described the emperor, they use the metaphor of the emperor with no clothes. It's, it's one thing to be the person who sees that the emperor is wearing no clothes. It's another one, well, to mix the metaphors, to send your child out into the street when nobody else is out in the street. It's going to take more than one family. So what do we do? Well, I do think Lenore is really onto something with the Let Grow movement. And, you know, what I think she has figured out that is so important is, is what you said, that it is really hard to do this as an individual or as an individual family. And so what she's doing with Let Grow is she's trying to kind of get entire communities involved where a community can declare themselves a Let Grow community. There's Let Grow clubs where different families can connect. She's going to different school districts and has gotten a number of them to do a Let Grow pilot program where the entire school will, for example, assign kids to go home and do something on their own that they've never done before. And it's part of the school assignment. So I think that she's right, that it has to be done as a community, that it's hard to do just individually. I don't know, though. I think that the other thing that I would add to that is I think that we need also a cultural shift from thinking about parenting and the responsibilities of parenting as a purely individual pursuit to a more communal approach. We need to decide that an individual woman cannot be the only person responsible for the well-being of her children. That's not realistic. I mean, there's a part in the book where I write about Deborah Harrell, who's an African-American mom who let her daughter play in the park unsupervised while she went to work at McDonald's. And she was arrested. She was jailed for three days. Her daughter was taken into foster care, into a group home for 17 days and not allowed to talk to her. It was a really horrible case. And I remember watching a video online of her being interrogated by a police officer. And he keeps saying to her, that girl is your responsibility, nobody else's. Nobody else's responsibility. And she's crying. And I just thought, how fucking sad, you know, that he's right, that he's right, that that's our mindset, that we as a culture, as a civilization are no longer responsible for our children. It's every person for themselves. It's every parent for themselves. So I think that that has to change. It's not just about let's stop arresting Although that's certainly a good first step. Well, when I grew up in the 70s and it was, I wouldn't say the most family friendly, (laughs) wasn't the holistic leave it to beaver world. And what I remember is one of the reasons my mother didn't have an issue with me taking the bus or going to my friend's house or playing in the neighborhood yards was you always had that sense that other people were, in fact, looking out from your child. I remember getting on the bus as a kid and there were these terrifying old ladies. Old ladies they, they always sit at the front of the bus with their rubber galoshes and their plastic <laughs> kerchiefs. And they, and if you misbehaved, 
they had no problem coming down on you. And same with the bus driver. He would stop the bus. And if you were being a monkey, he would stand and say, that's it. You sit in your seat and I don't want to hear anything more from you. And you did it. I guess people, A, are terrified they'll get a lawsuit if they do that to somebody else's kid. But that sense that the world is looking out for your kid is, is I think, exactly what you're saying. Maybe it's because neighborhoods are more empty. I don't know. But I like this idea that, that with this community where you become let grow communities, you're kind of acknowledging that people are going to take on that responsibility. Right. But there was the hierarchy of adults outranking children as well. So that if an adult who wasn't your parent told you off, you didn't mm-hmm. immediately run to your parent and demand redress for this outrage. But right. you, you were embarrassed well, no, because, you know, you'd just been told off by a grown up. Yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. And and now, you know, because of these other social panics, we think being an adult talking to a child who's not their own and the assumption, again, is that, oh, they're going to molest them or assault them. Or they have um, no right to discipline or your they have child. No right, almost as though the children are our property, right? That's the mindset. How dare you talk to my child as though that child is not a person and not a member of a community, but our private property. So just a few weeks ago, I was walking down the street and this, these two people were talking and the woman was saying she was so horrified because she'd been sitting at a cafe and a child had been, you know, just being rowdy and making a lot of noise or whatever. And this other person who was trying to read a book or something had said to the child, you know, sweetie, could you just keep it down a little? Other people are, are here too. This is not a playground. And the, the parent, the child's parent came up to the person and was like, how dare you say that? We have every right to be here. You know, you can't say that. And the person responded, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to your Ooh, child. Nice. nice. And this is like third hand eavesdropping on my part. But, <laughs> but then the person who had observed this was saying to her friend, isn't that terrible? And can you imagine someone saying that to you? And I thought, why is that terrible? Why can't an adult in a public space politely address a child and make a request that they keep it down a little bit? And that goes back to what I was saying in the beginning, this difference between We're idealizing you as putting you up on a pedestal, you as children, versus you are members of the community, just like everybody else. We value you. We see you. But your needs have to be sort of negotiated with other people. Right. And now you have these clash of cultures where, exactly as you say in the beginning, where the kids get to do anything, they're in charge, and there are people quite rightly around them who resent that. And it's like parents are also guilty of not disciplining their children, not teaching them how to be in public. I remember my husband's grandmother when I, with our first child, and she was two, and we were enamored with her and asked her everything about what she wanted to do or what she needed. And this matriarch of his family was watching us, and very gently and very politely, she said, it must be really terrifying to be that small and be in charge and not be able to look to the grown-ups to know what to do. And she didn't say it in a way that was like searing, but boy, I never forgot that. It was one of those life-changing comments, you know? And, and this is the thing, like parents with small children, you know, just because they're in the Vietnam of parenthood, as I think of it, that they have to impose order too. And, and this is part of the culture, I guess, what you're saying we're trying to, to change. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, anyway, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for writing this amazing book. Right, I think you should just toss out any other parenting to-do book and just read this book. It's so empowering of your own instincts of a parent, I think. That's what's so great about it. What I loved about it, it feels completely truthful. Like your account of 
very hilarious commentary of your mother was wonderful, and your and your mother's <laughs> friends loved that. You know, my mother did not think it was hilarious. So good. That's I- funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kim, before you go, I realize we forgot to ask you about your favorite cocktail. We ask all of our guests about this, and even maybe the larger question of. How did drinking help you get through these phases of motherhood? (laughs) But do you have a favorite cocktail, a mommy cocktail you can share with our our listeners? I do. I mean, I think this is a cocktail. It's good for moms, but it's really good for everybody. The sidecar, my favorite cocktail, it's like lemon juice, Cointreau, and cognac. Yeah, and you have to use the good stuff. You can't use Grand Marnier, right? Like, it's got to be the... You, you have to use the good stuff for this. Right. Yeah, and you ha- if you want to be very fancy, then you dip the rim of the glass in sugar. Yes. Oh. It hurts a little bit to talk about it because I'm doing the keto diet. Oh, no. I- oh, I just did that. Oh, it's <laughs> agony. <laughs> well, yeah, it is actually, Kim, that is my... I have gin and tonic in the summer, sidecars in the winter. It is it is like ambrosia in a glass, a sidecar. So we will it's delicious. definitely yeah. promote it. Oh, but Kim, remember that on keto, you can have whiskey because there are no carbs. That's true. I've heard that, right. Or vodka, right? Like right. Soda yeah. or something. Uh. But the problem is I actually cannot really drink when I'm on keto or diet because I have one drink and then I want like a slice of pizza <laughs> in my mind. Well, at least your kids are older now. So maybe the need is lessened. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, the book is called Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Please, please read it and buy it. Buy it and read it. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you buy it. Kim, again, thank you for coming on. Good luck with the book and good luck with your family. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Take yeah, care. Great. Bye, Kim. So, Megan, that was so much fun. What a fascinating woman. Terrific. I loved it. Thank you. You are like an awesome co-splainer. <laughs> and, and should either Christina or I not be able to do the podcast, we hope you will come on again. I'd be happy to splain. I, in fact, I can't wait to come back on and splain some <laughs> more. Splain. We won't do listener feedback this week because Christina's away. We got so many great comments about last week's podcast about traditional marriage and non-traditional marriage. And I can't wait to share those with you. But we'll bring them back when Christina's back next week. So... Thank you for joining us. Be a Femsplainer. Bye. Bye. Bye.